Hello and welcome to another exciting and, you guessed it, jam-packed episode of Modern Day Philosophers. I am your host, Daniel Lobel, and this audio might sound a little different, this intro and outro audio today, because I am currently recording from Marrakesh, Morocco, one of the most beautiful, mystical cities in the world. I'm here with my wife, Kylie Ora Lobel, and I'll tell you all about that another time. Well, we're at episode 101, and I couldn't be more excited because we have one of my childhood heroes, one of the only athletes I ever looked up to. Um, yeah, there were a few, a few basketball players and one or two baseball players, but one of the few athletes I ever aspired to be like, because I actually thought maybe one day I could be a great skateboarder too. I'm going to be talking to the one and only Tony Hawk, and it came about in a very funny way. We met uh, at this event for the Impossible Burger, which I'll have to tell you about another time also, because I'm on limited time right now, but he came up and he's like, I think I know you. I think I know you. It turns out he didn't know me, but I did have the opportunity to ask him to do the podcast and he was kind enough to say yes. And I went to his offices, to his head offices in San Diego, California, or San Diego. I don't know the right way to say it, but um, as long as I went for Marrakesh, I felt like I should go for San Diego. Uh, anyway, it was pretty cool. And uh, that's all I have to say about it. So, without further ado, except, of course, for the intro song, I give you my talk with the one and only Tony Hawk. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Modern Day Philosophers. Modern Day Philosophers. Having failed to pay attention in school, Danny Lobel, now older and wiser, will attempt to learn basic philosophy 101. Our young hero will be joined by today's top comedians, philosophers all their own. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Danny Lobel! Modern Day Philosophers. Can we describe where we are? Uh, sure. We are at my office in San Diego, where I have my companies and my foundation and my big skate ramp. Mostly that's the reason that we're in this office because it houses my ramp where I usually skate. This is, this is incredible, this ramp. And I've seen it in your videos before. Oh, uh, yeah. So it's like I, I didn't know I was going to be seeing it in person or in ramp. I don't know. <laughs> no, it's cool. <laughs> I, uh, it actually was designed for a tour we did um, in 2000. It started in 2002. And I... Um, put the task on a staging company that made big, big, like uh, concert staging for, for big bands and tours and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I said, I need a ramp that goes up and down as fast as a stage. Right. And so gave them all the dimensions and they went to work. And so what you see before you is this sort of marvel of technology that can go up in about two hours. Wow. From nothing. Amazing. So in your opinion, um, is it the perfect ramp? Yeah, it is actually. And it was, it was uh, a little bit of a, gamble because when I designed it, it was bigger than most other ramps at the time. And so some of the skaters and especially the BMX guys were, were hesitant about it. Mm -hmm. And once they got used to it, they realized like, this is sort of the standard now. And, and basically any competition ramp is at least that big. And so that is 13 feet high or actually 13 and a half feet high. So you redefined the standard with In this. a way. Yeah. Um, it's just what everyone got used to. And I always felt like the bigger ramps, even though they might seem intimidating, they give you more time in the air and they give you a, a better landing zone. And it's still, you're still capable of generating speed in that radius 
Like if you get a radius bigger than this, then you need something else kind of to make get that speed. Well, you may be shocked to hear this. You don't know me, but I don't probably look like a typical skateboarder. But it was my original ambition when I was a kid. Oh, yeah? Cool. To skateboard. And uh, I had a skateboard at age five, and I went right into a brick wall, full speed, oh. cracked my head wide open, still have the scar right here. You can oh, see no that. way. Oh, yeah, that's and crazy. That, and that was the last when you were time five. when I was five. Wow. Was it like a heavy concussion and all yeah. that? You must have gone really fast. I was going really fast and I went right into a wall and that was it. I was blacked out and they stitched up my head and to this day I have this big scar here oh, with no heavy. hair. Wow. And uh, I've never been on a skateboard ever since. You know, a lot of people tell me a story where they say, oh, my first time on a skateboard, like I fell flat on my ass or whatever and that scared me away. But your your story is legitimately scary. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like some people say that. I'm like, ah, come on. Like you got scraped up a little bit. Pick yeah. yourself up. But yours is like, wow, that, that's life-threatening. That's scary. Yeah. You know, it's not that I've never been on one ever since. I tried a few times, but I had just no balance after that. I couldn't do it anymore. Oh, that's it was, awful. I'm it was, sorry. Yeah. But, um, but I still think it's awesome. And I used to play, the closest I ever got was I used to play your game on PlayStation. Oh, yeah. Cool. Back in 1999 when it first came out. Oh, um, thank you. Uh, so it's pretty cool to be sitting here with you who used to be me as you, <laughs> as you. <laughs> it's gameception. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was, uh, in your avatar. Isn't that weird? I that, was, yeah, that is yeah. weird. Yeah. I've actually had people apologize to me, um, through the years. Like, I'm sorry for putting your character through much <laughs> so much torture and yeah, injury. And, I felt bad about it. Yeah. I, you not feel bad. The only, the, it's funny. I, Having a game, I mean, firstly, like, like that game series changed my life in so many ways, but um, having that avatar and seeing it, you know, do these things was always exciting, but there's one sort of uh, animation fall in there that always gets me. And it's sort of this knee buckle thing that he does. Uh -huh. I think we put it in about the third or fourth game, but, but that one is the only one that really, when I watch it, bothers me. <laughs> Why, why do because you I've had knee issues before and I've had knee surgeries and I know like what it takes to, you know, sort of pop a ligament or something. Yeah. And there's one move in that where it looks like that happens. And every time it makes me cringe. Oh man. Yeah. I don't mind like falling and there's blood coming out of whatever, but, but that one like is internal and I know the damage it does. And you fall all the time still, right? I do. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's, th that is a basis of being a skater is learning how to fall. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, it doesn't, you know, it's like can't predict a, everything. A, but a vaudeville comedian and a skater would both I think learn, so, yeah. Yeah, but, but you learn, you also learn like when things are a little off and, and to not take that many chances in, in a way. I mean, mm -hmm. sometimes you, you need to if it's like, if it's, uh, if you're under pressure, if like if it's at the time or you're in competition and stuff, you're going to take more chances. But in terms of what I do, on a regular basis, um, I definitely have learned like to finesse things and, and like, okay, this is not quite going to work, or maybe this isn't going to work the way I wanted it to. Um, but you learn a lot through just through trial and error. So let's talk about the taking chances. When do you draw the line on taking a chance? Um, it's it's changed through the years. It's changed with my age and obligations. Uh, when I was younger. I was much more risk adverse. Like I would, I mean, I was much more risky. I would 
try things and, and kind of go without considering the consequences of, of what I was doing. I mean, everything was relatively calculated. It wasn't like I was just going to go and hope for the best. It was mm-hmm. like, all right, I have this particular skill set. I know I can do these two tricks possibly together. But as I got older and, and did, you know, suffer some pretty heavy injuries, including bad concussions, um, you know, I realized more, a, a better sense of mortality, a better sense of responsibility to my kids and things like that. Mm-hmm. So now the risks I take are more calculated and, and the impact is lower. I, it's hard to explain, but mm-hmm. like my style has changed so that the tricks I'm doing, if I fall on them, even in a worst case scenario, it's not going to be so life-threatening as it is when I'm 15 feet above a ramp and spinning blindly. Right. Um, so the things I'm doing are a little more intricate, a little more technical, like coping type of tricks, you know, flip, spin, stuff like that, where I'm, I'm more maneuvering the board instead of my body. And that allows me to stay um, creative, but survive another day. Yeah, that's important, the yeah. surviving. No more 900s. Uh, I never say never, but... Uh-huh. Um, it doesn't really interest me. You know, at this point mm-hmm. it would just be me fighting age instead of like, instead of breaking new ground. Right. And I don't feel like that's, you know, that's really the path I wanted to take with my skate career. It was yeah. just like, I can still do it when I'm this old. It's just like, <laughs> no, I can still do other things and yeah. stay relevant and stay, and stay progressive. What is the thrill of skating for you nowadays? Um, it's still always, it's always been the same, you know, my sense of freedom, my sense of creativity, my art form in a lot of ways, uh, my sense of my way of exercising. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I still like the, the, the great buzz for me is doing something new. Even if it's something that someone's already done, it, the idea that, that I sort of overcame something and, and was able to do something I've never done before is, is always the biggest high I could get from skating. Right. And it's what I was always chasing. And in life, right? And in life, sure. Yeah, I mean, I I love new challenges, and I mean, having kids, there are always new challenges every day, yeah. <laughs> every every hour, um, and I embrace those challenges. You know, what I mean, I don't I don't run away from them, and so for sure, sort of guiding children into making good choices is is the same sort of feeling of, of accomplishment that you can get. So my wife and I are planning on starting to try to have kids and okay. I'm terrified about it. Uh, yeah. What can you tell me? You it's have a any... scary prospect for sure. Yeah. Um, you kind of make it up as you go. I mean, you know, there's no guidebook for sure. There are, there are better ways to be present and engaging and, and effective as a, as a parent. But mm-hmm. I think that everyone's different. And so your, your journey to fatherhood is going to be different or your experiences of other fathers will be different. Um, but I think that the best thing you can do is to really support them and know when to give them some limitations. Mm -hmm. I mean, they got to find their own way. Um, so you got to kind of let them do that instead of sort of pushing them into some, maybe some thing that you were into, Mm -hmm. um, which, you know, they can get, be resentful for that. That can, that can backfire completely. Were you afraid going into it? I was, I was really young though. So, uh, I, well, I was 24 when my first son was born. And so I think I was, I was excited in that I could participate in things with him and truly be active with him. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, like I was still a kid in a lot of ways. I was still trying to make a career as a skater and, 
that was that was a big challenge for sure. And you know, having this huge responsibility and trying to make a living put a big strain on his mom and I. Um, we barely saw each other, and it wasn't because of him. It was just because of because of us trying to make ends meet. Um, and it was uh, it was a big strain. It was really hard, but uh, at the same time. I do feel like I, I engaged him and connected with him because I was younger. Yeah. What, what does scare you? Um, Cause you seem like a, a fearless person. Uh, what scares me these days is, is my children getting hurt. However, in, in any way, you know, and, and them being afraid of, of their future or being afraid of, of things ahead of them. I think that's what scares me and, and trying to give them some sense of confidence and some sense of, of guidance for those things. But, um, but for sure, like, you know, it's a scary world out there. All these crazy things are happening and, and to just sort of send them off into the world with a good set of values is one thing, but at the same time, there's so much uncertainty Yeah, and, you know, and, and a lot of, a, a lot of danger in a way. Um, and that's scary. That's scary as a parent. Mm-hmm. Like right now, all my kids are out and about, you know, they're at school or they're, they're working, so to speak. And, um, and I'm, all I can do is hope that they make good choices. Yeah. Yeah. Are, is it, is it a lot of faith, that type of thing? I mean, uh, is it faith? I don't, I don't know if it's, I, I, it's, it's belief in them. It's belief in what I've taught them through the years. But you have to let go at a certain point, you right? You have to let go, sure. And, and yeah, I believe, you know, I believe that, that I've set them up with the right skill set, with the right uh, mindset. Mm-hmm. And, and sure, there's, there's a, there's an, a, there is definitely a, a part of that is faith, to let them go. Is it the same kind of faith like letting go when you're skating? I think I feel like I'm more in control of that. Than, than what is going to happen with them in their life. So I, I feel like I have a much better sense of my own destiny and creating my own destiny in skating mm-hmm. than with my kids. So sure, there's faith. I mean, I, I have to believe myself right. you know, to make these things happen. And sometimes, like you know, in, in, the, in the example of, of doing a new trick, uh, I have all the pieces to the puzzle and then I have to believe that it's all going to work. So there's a faith in that as well, where it's like, you've, you've done all these things, put them together and believe it's going to work. Yeah. That's the same thing for me as a comedian. When I put together a show, I have the pieces and then I'm like, all right. <laughs> yeah, that's I, it pretty much. I guess. And, you know, and it doesn't always work, mm-hmm. but for the most part, you've, you've learned through experience that it can. Did you always believe in yourself strongly? Um, not really. I mean, I was definitely, uh, I, I was pretty insecure as a kid just because I was really small. Uh, as even through my early teen years, I was like, I was really small and skinny. But do you have siblings? I do. Yeah, they're older. Uh, much of my, my older brothers, well, my, I have two older sisters and a brother. My brother is the closest. He's 13 years older than me. Mm-hmm. So they were pretty much out of the house by the time I was growing up. Yeah. So I was kind of like an only child. And like I said, I was, you know, I was kind of nerdy. I was skinny. So I already had all those things going against me. And I would get picked on a lot as a kid because of that. Um, 
these days we call it bullying but uh-huh. back then. I mean, you, just you were just being picked on. You just deal with it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like no one, no one's coming to your defense, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. And I'm not saying one is better than the other. I'm just saying like, that's how it was. The you language had, has become more severe had, though, right? Bullying is the language. Is worse yeah. And, and the, um, and the consistency of it, you mm-hmm. know, the amount of it for sure. People pile on and now there's social media. So there's mm-hmm. just a whole new out, outlet for it. But um, I think people didn't used to be triggered. I think that that only started happening. Uh, I disagree. I mean, I, like, I I saw people snap for sure. Like, oh no, I it, mean, I think they snap, but I don't think I ever heard anybody say they were triggered. Like, right, right. I mean, yeah. that's a word that just sort of came about. I don't know in the last ten years. Well, I think it's also just having self awareness that that is what's happening to you. Yeah, you know, back when I was a kid, there was no one saying, "Oh, he's triggered." It was just like, "Ah, right." He's going to cry. There were these things happening. You didn't know what they were. Or yes. The, yeah. Yes. So now we have, we definitely have identified what they are and, right. and, and the causes of them and the symptoms of them. And, yeah. and that's great. That's great. That's, that's, you know, that's healthy growth for a future generation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'm not trying to say like, wham, poor me, like for sure those things gave me resolve and did make me believe in myself in terms of like my skating. When I first started skating, skating was the furthest thing from cool. So as I got better at it, as I dove deeper into it, I removed myself further from my classmates and my, my friends, my neighborhood, because they just weren't into it and they didn't understand it. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I was getting better at it. So I just had to believe in that. And I also found friends that were like, that were like-minded in terms of the kind of skating they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And we sort of had this little collective of, of friends that were trying new tricks and we just didn't care what the outcome was because we were enjoying it. How old were you? Uh, in those years, I was like 12, 12, 13. Okay. So you were being picked on pre- prior to your skating? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and in into the early years of my skating because then it was like I was identified as a skater in school. Mm-hmm. And if you're identified as a skater in school forget it like you know forget you're you're worse you're lower than nerds on the cool pool so maybe you're the guy who made skating cool uh i i mean as far as i was concerned skating was cool yeah you know the 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 pros at the time were were punk and and they were aggressive and they were um daredevils and so i thought it was cool but i just you know i didn't the the general um, sense of skating was that it was it was a toy, it was nerdy, it was dorky. But by the time I was growing up, it was already cool. I guess so. I mean, I for sure for sure there were other elements in place mm-hmm. in terms of uh, it being on TV, X Games. You know, our mm-hmm. video games definitely helped to raise the profile. Um, and it is weird now. I mean, even it, when you were growing up too, and now like the the cool kids in school are, are the skaters for the most part. Right. Maybe Bart Simpson made it cool. I'm not. <laughs> I don't, that's funny you say that though, because when, when the Simpsons first started, I remember skating was at a low, low point. Like the Simpsons started in 92 ish. That's when skating was like at its worst in terms of, of popularity. Mm-hmm. And suddenly you see this, you know, the coolest animated show has a skater as a kid. And, and I think that maybe they were more uh, linking him to being an outcast. Interesting. Through skating. Huh. 
But you're right. That is that's an interesting fact because you know even even through those dead years of skating, Bart Simpson was still <laughs> in the intro skating on his dad's car. Yeah, be, being uh, being punk rock about it and yeah, and making people change perhaps their perception of yeah, what exactly. skaters were. Yeah. So so that's uh, so when did you decide that you wanted to skate professionally? When did you say, hey, there's a career in this? Uh, I. I would never say that I chose it as a career. I I was lucky that I was that I was young enough um, to be naive in that I wasn't I wasn't looking for a career. It was more like uh, I had reached the top of the amateur ranks at age thirteen, mm-hmm. and skating was a very small community, so that that wasn't some huge thing. This it was, was here in San Diego, right? Well, just the, I mean, most of it was in Southern California, mm-hmm. but yeah, I was, I live in San Diego, but, but skating was mostly in California because that's where the industry was, but there were pockets of, of skate scenes in Texas and Florida and, and lots of places on the East coast. So, mm-hmm. um, so most of the competitions were here and that's where people would come to, you know, even from the other areas. Uh, so I reached the top of the amateur ranks pretty quickly. I think that's what what people noticed is that like I was suddenly sponsored, and then by the end of the first year of my sponsorship, I was placing in the top three every time. Mm-hmm. Um, so then the next the evolution of of being a skater then was to turn pro, which means all you do is move up in class of competition. No one's offering you a contract. There's no there's no skateboard. Um, guarantee with your name on it. Yeah, it was more like, I. I this is how I turned pro. I, I filled out the entry form to the to a competition. A couple of my friends were entering the pro category, mm-hmm. and so I checked the pro box instead of the amateur box on the entry form. <laughs> I wish it. it was that simple in everything in life. <laughs> but also, but I I knew what it meant. Yeah. I knew there was no going back, and I knew that suddenly I was going to compete on a much heavier level of of people that were already established that were known that were older um so it was for me a, you know it was monumental mm-hmm. but in the grand scheme of things you know i was competing for a 150 dollars first place prize i wasn't choosing a career at the time so there was no hesitation to check pro it was just the hesitation was that suddenly i was gonna be you know i was gonna be like instead of the big fish in small pond i was gonna be <laughs> Uh, a small fish in a big pond because suddenly it was like oh i'm going against the guys that i used to read about in magazines so it's given up status a bit yeah yeah um but but at the same time i knew that i had to otherwise i was like i was just cruising mm-hmm. you know i was playing i was playing it easy so um i did and i remember being super nervous that first event i think i placed fourth um which was huge for me like fourth place my mm-hmm. first pro contest right behind three of the legendary pros. Do you think the nervousness helped you or hurt you? I think that I had learned to deal with that early on in my amateur career. So in some ways it gave me a fire. It probably gave me a little boost of of trying things or like sort of pushing the things that I could do a little bit harder, a little bit higher. Um, But I learned early on that that the nerves could get the best of me and that I had to, I had to uh, really practice and um, get things dialed so much that it almost became boring Mm -hmm. because in my first competitions, I did, I I got like second to last place. Because of nervousness. 
Yeah, because I would, I would fall on things that I took for granted, you know, things that, that I thought were easy. So it was basically just being so sure of yourself that killed the, that that's what you did to, to fight the nervousness. Yeah. I, I would practice incessantly. I would go like if the competition was at a different skate park, I would go make sure I went to that park on the weekends prior to the event. You know, I was still in school, so mm-hmm. I, I did the best I could, but I would go to these parks and I'd practice and I would get, you know, get these routines down and I would get them so down that, that I could do them without thinking. Mm-hmm. And that dissipated the fear for you. That gave me the confidence. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Cause you already know, okay, there's no doubt I've done this. I've done it. So yeah. Many and times. then I would like, I have a couple of tricks that maybe like to up the ante a little bit in my back pocket. That's like, all right, if, if I make it to this round and I've done everything that I wanted to, then I'll get a little riskier with my moves. And that always worked well for me. That's the reward. That's the excitement. That is. Yeah. I mean, that was like, that was like the icing on the cake of, of being, you know, being on point and then upping it a little bit. I totally can relate to that also. Uh, and I see things in terms of comedy. So I know that when there's a gig that makes me nervous, I'm like, all right, I got to hit this one, this one, this one. Right. If everything's just going smooth, I'll take a risk with this one. Right. You know, it's the same kind of thing. Like it's risky, but it's cushioned in some kind of security. Yeah. Yeah. And also I, I wouldn't feel good about what I was doing if I wasn't really taking some chances too. Yeah. Cause I can't just cruise, you know, autopilot this whole thing. Otherwise it's boring for you. It's bo- And also, and you just look boring, <laughs> you know, skating is a lot about style too. And if you're just doing it and it looks easy for you, you get marked down for it, which is ironic. Mm-hmm. Even if the stuff you're doing is, is way harder than anyone else in the event. If you look like it's easy for you, they're going to not score you well because it's not exciting for the audience to see you not be excited yeah yeah that's true that's part of it for sure Mm -hmm. but i feel like some people just get dissed from their style regardless (laughs) you know and it's not fair to them really so there's there's a fine line yeah yeah but like you said it is performance right it is performance sure but i feel like like i said i feel like i've seen plenty of people that have an amazing skill set that are doing tricks that maybe are exclusive to them because no one else can do them. Right. But because it just looks like clockwork. It, you tune out as an audience yeah, you member. Tune out. You zone but out. also there's an element of skating that is on edge and judges like to see you kind of almost falling. Yeah. That's a big thing in skating. If you look like you're out of control and you somehow bring it together, you're going to get way more points. I think it's like that with all performance. I think everybody- I don't think so though. Like if you look at, let's, let's compare it to ice skating. Uh-huh. If an ice skater looks like they're out of control, they're not going to get scored better. But when you right? watch ice skating, like when I watch ice skating in the Olympics, I don't want to just like zone out and watch like almost robotic thing. You kind of want to be like, is there some risk? Are they going to fall? Yeah. Is there, you know? Sure. So I, I, no, I, I agree. I'm just saying yeah, like, yeah. but that. Oh, I see. But that. you mean from scoring wise? From scoring. Yes. Yeah. No, yeah. no. From the audience perspective, it's way more exciting. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Everybody always kind of wants to see you almost fall. Sure. I think if you're really sadistic, you want to see the person fall. But if you're normal, yeah. you yeah. kind of want to see them almost fall. Sure. You know? The I, agony of defeat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to hear a little more about your childhood, um, about growing up. What did your parents do? Uh, my dad was in the Navy and he uh, was stationed in San Diego. That's how we ended up here. And then he was retired and he started a, uh, a musical instrument import business. So he was doing wholesale musical instruments because my, my older sister was a singer 
and she had a band in high school and that was sort of how he was able to weave into that world and mm-hmm. and provide equipment to her and her bandmates um and then he did that for a while my my mom was a teacher uh at a community college she'd worked at a high school all through uh years before i was born and then when i was born she she teached at a community college and then and she teaches education business education and then uh she went on to get her doctorate when she was in her 50s mm-hmm. in education which was pretty cool yeah that is cool um and then uh luckily since my dad was retired for the most part he was able to bring me to all these skate events yeah you had that that relationship with him because yeah. he had all that open time uh yeah and and also he was supportive i mean a lot of my friends parents didn't want them skating they didn't think it was a positive influence on them mm-hmm. your dad was he was he a pretty militant guy being from this navy background uh, if you didn't know him, you might think so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, he actually helped to organize some skate events through those years because there was very little organization and very few competitions happening. And he saw that void in, in support. And so he helped to organize uh, actually a sanctioning body called the National Skateboard Association. And he got some of the um, bigger uh, skate industry folks to, to help fund it. And NSA lasted for 12 years after that. So he was pretty entrepreneurial. Yeah, I don't think that was entrepreneurial. That was, that was much more, I would almost say charitable mm-hmm. um, or philanthropic. You know, he, wasn't, he, he wasn't making money from it. He just saw this lack of organization in a sport that brought a lot of, a, a lot of good to these kids mm-hmm. and a lot of kids that felt disenfranchised, you know, and had rough backgrounds. And Not, you continued that on, right? That, what, um, the NSA continued. I didn't. I mean, I mean, but don't you have a philanthropic organization? Yeah, that? I do. But, but mine, mine is literally a charity to help fund skate parks in low income areas. Yeah. What he was doing was just helping to uh, organize skate events. But I, I wonder if you get that part of you from him, from being inspired. From um, that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that so much of what I do is inspired by his support. Uh, really what the foundation, the, the catalyst for that was just seeing the amount of interest in skating and the lack of facilities. And, and that just was so obvious, painfully obvious in the early 2000s when mm-hmm. all of a sudden skating, you know, our video game was taking off. People were skating all over the place and cities were not providing places to do it. Um, but the ones that were providing places were mostly affluent areas and the parks were terrible. So I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to affect change mostly in getting those facilities in the more needy areas, but also to help bridge the gap between the, the cities providing for them and the people they're providing them to. Because the cities were basically just getting the, the lowest bidding contractor to... Mm-hmm to build a cement structure that they think is a skate park, which usually was a terrible facility. Right. And I, I was like, why, why aren't you asking the kids who, who are the ones who are going to be skating this? They never ask the kids. You should always ask the yeah. kids. I actually went, the, 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 the turning point for me was I got, I, I got invited to a skate park opening um, outside of Chicago that was in a pretty affluent area. And the city council was so proud that, you know, I think they had spent a few hundred thousand dollars on this facility and they were so proud of it. And they invited me to come to the grand opening and I got to go the night before to get like a sneak preview of the park. Mm -hmm. And all these city council members were like clamoring on the fence, watching me skate. And it was, it was 
really bad. Like it was the design, you know, there'd be a, a set of stairs into a wall. Uh-huh. Uh, what they considered a snake run was basically a winding path of a sidewalk with no banks yeah. on it. And I basically said, you know, they said, they said, how is it? How is it? And I said, it's, it's really bad. I don't know what to tell you. It's, you know, it's designed poorly. These ledges aren't even high enough for you to board slide on them. Yeah. Um, and they said, oh, well, that's what all the kids said when we were building it. And we said, well, wait till Tony Hawk gets here and he'll show you how to ride it. And that to me spoke volumes because it was like, you're not even listening to these kids. You want to provide it for it. And you think that somehow I'm going to, I have some magic spell that would make it okay. And like, and did, that was it. That was the that was the moment I decided to start a foundation. Did they change that park? I've never really heard. I think they must have tore it down. It's 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 embarrassingly bad. <laughs> I mean, I just don't understand how anyone and, and even if it were still there, no one would skate it. Yeah, yeah. I want to go back for a second. Your dad sold musical instruments. Did you wind up playing any musical instruments yourself? Uh, I played violin for a bit because I thought it was really cool and it was like different from the guitar which all my friends were trying to play i played violin for a bit oh yeah yeah i did enjoy it actually and i got i i started to excel um over the first couple years and started getting invited to play uh concerts outside of school you know like sort of on weekends and things like that Mm -hmm. um and at some point it started to overlap my skating uh events and my music teacher told me I had to make a decision between skating and violin, and and um, which I regret. I, I I regret that I listened to him because yeah. I feel like there was always room for both, and I could have kept doing it. But he thought I really was going to try to have a future with it with with violin, and so I said, "Okay, I'm going to choose skating." I think you're the version of me that everything works for. <laughs> my music teacher dumped me. He dumped you, really? He dumped me. I didn't find out about it for years. I thought I was a great violinist, but it turned out that I was terrible. I thought my parents discontinued the the lessons, but he was a very strict Korean guy named Mr. Moon, and he told my parents that I was an unteachable bore or something. And they told you that? (laughs) They told me that years later. That's terrible. Yeah, I I, I asked my mom a few years ago. I said, why did you stop the violin? I love the violin. She goes, we didn't stop it. Mr. Moon stopped it. He said you, you can't he said you were unteachable. But that's on him. That's not, you yeah. know what I mean? Like that and that's that's not true. Like to, to say you're unteachable. It's just because your technique is not effective across all boards, you know? I don't, but but I also I'm the guy who crashed the skateboard into the wall. I feel like <laughs> Yeah, but I, if everything had gone right for me, I'd be Tony Hawk. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I I I I disagree. Well, I disagree. I think I think that that you were dealt a bad hand in those instances. Thank you. And I think that for sure, if you, you know, if you had eased into it or had a different, had a different style of someone teaching you either one of those things, you could have at least kept doing them, maybe not professionally, Mm -hmm. but doing them leisurely and enjoying it. Yeah. Um, But that's, yeah, that's harsh. I mean that, and that sucks that he would, (laughs) he would discourage a kid from doing something like that. I know. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for validating that. (laughs) (laughs) No. And like, same thing. I, I, I kind of, you know, I still harbor this, this anger towards my music teacher for saying that I couldn't do both. Cause I've tried to pick up violin again recently and it's not like riding a bike, you know, it's, it's, yeah, we should, we should, we should learn it together. We should. (laughs) And teach these guys. We'll show them. Yeah, we will. We'll show them. Yeah. Yeah. We'll do, we'll do it. We'll do a duet. (laughs) 
while yeah. flipping off our teachers. Yeah, I still like. I was just in Vienna, and I went to the Great Opera House there, and I saw oh, yeah. the violinists, and I was so jealous. I'm like, so awesome! Yeah. It's so awesome to watch too when you have some basic knowledge of it from the past. Yeah, you're like, ah, that could have been me. Yeah, I could have been somebody. I wonder if it's in my blood in some way. You know, my my grandmother was uh, from Vienna. And, oh wow! And uh, she 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 was kicked out. Uh, 80 years ago. I don't know. She just shoplifting or something. The Nazis. I, uh, Crazy. Yeah. So I went back with her after 80 years now. And Oh, that's amazing. And, and she's 80? She's 94. Oh, my God. She that's, had that's, wow. So was my mom. Yeah. Really? <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, crazy. she hadn't been there since childhood. And uh, she went back to her childhood apartment and I went with her. It was a surreal experience. Oh, super cool. Wow. But, um, you know, there's a lot of violin and a lot of music around. Yeah, Vienna. yeah, yeah. So. It's never too late. I should have told Mr. Moon. You know, I'm part Viennese. I, uh, I don't know. Yeah, but did Mr. Moon really have any successful kids? I feel like the only successful kids he would have had were already prodigal. I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think there's like the people who always seem really bad at the beginning sometimes do some really cool stuff later that. The prodigies yes. don't do. I can tell you from experience, like just seeing skaters and seeing people who absolutely have a natural talent. And, and I don't say that lightly. Like, I don't think you, it's just it's a God-given thing, right? I think that you can work for it. But sometimes you see someone where it's just easy for them in the beginning. Yeah. And I saw, like, there were a couple of riders on, on our team early on. One just had it. He could do anything. You know, it was just too easy for him and he wasn't motivated and he wasn't, he didn't have that fire. Mm -hmm. And there was another kid who was super sloppy, you know, would try anything, didn't make most of the stuff he did, but he had that fire and he just kept at it and he became one of the best skaters in the world. He had something to prove to Andrew himself. Andrew Reynolds. Oh, okay. Andrew Reynolds was like a scrappy little kid who could barely get his board off the ground. How were you when you started? Which um, one of those guys would, would you say? You I were? was definitely more like Andrew, just just trying, you know, and, and not really caring if I got hurt along the way um, and and doing everything and anything, you know. And, and, and once I got some strength and some confidence, I began to sort of emulate some of the pros I had seen growing up and started sort of expanding on, on their tricks. And it was like, oh, wait, now I have my own thing. Mm -hmm. At some point, I realized, like, oh, I'm making these tricks up that no yeah. one's done. Yeah. Why do you think you've been so much more successful than so many other skaters? I think I was always, I always wanted a new challenge. I was never resting on my accolades. I didn't care that I won a contest or that I was ranked number one or whatever. I just wanted to keep getting better at what I was doing. And I feel like that drive, you know, some people, they get into whatever their craft is because they want to be rich or famous. Mm -hmm. And if they get a taste of either one of those things, then they lose their motivation because it's like, well, that was right. it. I just wanted to be famous or I wanted to be number one. And you've got to keep challenging yourself no matter what. And, and through the years, even, even when I stopped competing, all I wanted to do was, you know, learn new tricks or, or bring skateboarding to, to new audiences through other means and I found a lot of different uh, opportunities. Was there ever a time it felt stale for you? It, it, it started to feel stale when all I did was doing was competing. And that's why I got out of competition. Um, and not stale. It just felt like I was stuck in a rut of how I skated. It was more like if you compete 
you've got to be somewhat conservative with how you ride because you've got to, you got to be consistent. You got to mm-hmm. stay on, right? And if you're always throwing everything out there, then chances are you're not really going to rise to the top that often. Once in a while, it's going to work, but usually it's not. Yeah. And that's not a sustainable career. Um, so when I was competing, at some point I felt like, all right, I'm just kind of, I'm kind of playing it safe. I'm not really exploring the tricks and the opportunities that I want to do just so that I can stay number one, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And, and I had to just make a clean break. What do you think were the big events in your life that had the biggest influence on you? Um, well, for one, having kids for sure. Uh, but before that, being recognized by Stacey Peralta was a huge boost to my confidence because before that I was still considered like the nerdy little kid that just did circus tricks, you know, spinning his board and stuff. And Mm -hmm. Stacey Peralta, who was the founder and coach of one of the most esteemed skate teams at the time, when he believed in me enough to put me on the team, that changed my perception of, of how I was or how good I was. Yeah. Of your, of yourself, of who you were. Of myself. Sure. Um, And you don't realize how, how, you know, if if you are in a position that, that you could do something like that for someone or just give them a little nod of, of validation, how far that can go. And, And that resonated with me. And still to this day, you know, I make sure that I reach out if I see someone that I feel like has done something pretty significant or, or unique, I want to give, you know, at least give them props, not mm-hmm. say I'm going to, I'm going to mentor you and do all this, but just like, Hey, that was sick. And, and I feel like that goes a long way. And I learned that from Stacy. Um, but other than that, for sure, having kids taught me a sense of responsibility and, you know, that, that it's not just about me and that, that, uh, you can kind of make your surroundings a better place through teaching your kids to respect people and to make good choices. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, I mean, truly, if I'm talking about my career trajectory, making the first 900 uh, that X Games was my, was my way of exiting competition, but also it set me on a, on a path of recognition and awareness that I never imagined. How did that awareness change? What, what, can you articulate that for me? Um, suddenly I was getting stopped at airports mm-hmm. by people that clearly don't skate. Ah, like, I see what you Dude, mean. Dude, I saw you do 900 where before that, the only people who cared about skating and who really loved skating were skaters, mm-hmm. were people who were devoted to it. Oh, you're talking, because I thought there was a distinction between the recognition and the awareness. You mean people being aware of you? Yes. I thought you were talking about your own awareness. No, I wasn't. It wasn't that it changed my own awareness. It just changed how I was perceived in the general public, and and that people did recognize me all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. You know, there was this sort of there was this um, element of celebrity that I didn't ever imagine that people would have or that I would have from skateboarding, mm-hmm. or nor that I wanted. Do you know what I mean? I never was trying to get into skating to be famous. When I got into skating, you couldn't be rich or famous. The best guys were, you know, in in their late teens and just getting free gear and they got their picture in the magazine. That's as far as you could go with skateboarding at the time. Um, So to all of a sudden be thrust into that spotlight was was super disorienting. But at the same time, I was happy that 
I had, you know, I, I had made a clean break from competition through that. Mm-hmm. And that suddenly I had more opportunity to make a career as a skater yeah. without competing. That was really the, the tipping point for me. It was like, I don't have to compete. Finally, I can go do these other things that I always dreamed of and keep skating and maybe skating better in a lot of ways because I can take more chances. It allow you to be an artist. <clears throat> yes. In other words, yeah, you, you didn't have that pressure anymore. Right. Um, so you mentioned that you didn't, you didn't want to be famous. Well, it wasn't that I didn't want to. It was just not something I ever aspired to be. Yeah. Um, once it happened, then it was like, oh, wow, I'm getting invited to Hollywood events and, you know, to appear on TV shows and to So to you immediately embraced things. it. I, I did in, in a way, probably like through the mid 2000s, probably in a more unhealthy way. How so? Um, just sort of indulging in, you know, in, in the opportunities, the parties, like the fabulous people. And, and it was like, at some point I was like, this is not who I am really. And this is not what I want to do. And I sort of had to make a, not a break, but, but definitely come back to what I really love, which was skating. And so I'd say like in the mid 2000s, later 2000s is when I made an effort to really get back into the world of skating and be recognized as a, as a um, progressive skater instead of just a celebrity. Cause mm-hmm. that, you know, the skate world is very finicky anyway. It's not like I, I wanted their validation. Yeah. I just wanted to go back to what I love doing. And you were burned out on the Hollywood thing. The, yeah. The Hollywood thing. And just the, the idea that you're, you know, I met, I met all those people that are just, they're famous for being famous. They're not, you know what I mean? They don't really have anything to offer other than being on TV. And, and that's just not what I'm interested in. Right. And it wasn't the crew I wanted to hang out with. And, you know, and, and so, um, kind of got back to basics. I mean, there were a few different events that, that helped inspire that. One was getting a, a big injury, like a traumatic injury. I broke my pelvis and um, it, it was very likely I couldn't skate again. And I had to push through so much sort of rehabilitation and confidence. And it took me about a year to really get back to skating the way that I was happy with. Yeah. Um, but, but knowing that I was able to push through all that really helped me realize that is what I love doing. You know, I didn't, the, the skating was not a stepping stone for me yeah. to be a celebrity. Skating was what was in my blood. It, it was what you, I had to do. So the injury kind of set you back on track. It's like when in you, in a lot of ways, yes. When you break like the bone sure. to set it straight again. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So you seem to me my assessment, a very nice guy, a very healthy guy, and a, and a pretty balanced guy. Am I, first of all, am I correct in this? Assumption? I hope so. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's definitely my, that, that is the end goal. You're yes. not hiding some crazy sinister <laughs> no. side. No. Um, but were there, were there times when you went through some uh, personal struggles? Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I think in those days, especially like after getting hurt and, and sort of reevaluating what I was doing. And um, I mean, there were a few different struggles I went through through those years. I mean, definitely with my relationships, um, with my, you know, uh, distractions, um, with compulsive behaviors. Uh, I, you know, went through a couple of other injuries where I think I was probably using painkillers a little more than I should have been. Yeah. Um, and, and recognizing those things and realizing that they weren't keeping me present, especially in my kids' lives, mm-hmm. was a huge turning point for me yeah was was something that i had to i was the only one capable of changing that and recognizing it you know no one else is going to do that for you so how did that come about for you um it was just more like i saw that 
I felt that not life, but, but like my kids' lives where it's sort of a lot of events in their lives were passing me by and I was choosing to distract with other means or, you know, do, do things that were not um, necessary, like go to, go to an event that it's like right. didn't really. I think I, I should rephrase the question. How, do, how were you able to break the bad habits? What, what were um, the internal revelations that you had? That it was okay to sort of be uncomfortable. I think that was a big revelation that I, that I could, that I could be comfortable in my own skin without having to always go or having to do something for other people. Um, and, and, uh, being present for my kids, you know, not just, not just going to their concert or whatever, but, but truly being there for them, Mm -hmm. um, and being available to them because I, before then I wasn't so available to them in terms of being home when they're, they're just home. And, yeah, learning to just sort of be still. I think that was probably a big, big point. I, I hadn't, you know, through the years I was running ragged, yeah. doing skate events, doing video games, doing press, you know, doing press and and events and things. And, and I just never had a chance to be idle. And when I was idle, I was uncomfortable with it. Yeah. Because it was something I was unfamiliar with. You were always such an active person in so yeah. many different respects. Yeah. And I still am, but but I feel like my my balance of, being active and being busy is much better in terms of my busyness is, is very much with my kids as the priority. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a big shift. That's great. That's uh, that's a, a cool thing to be able to change in yourself. It is. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I feel like I, I could have learned it a lot earlier <laughs> and it would have been beneficial, but, but at the same time, I kind of had to taste all those things to figure out where I fit in. Right. Yeah, I think your problem is unique. I think most people can't get moving, but you had a hard time stopping. Right, yeah. yeah. And to this day, I mean, I do sort of tend to keep myself too busy. And that's something that, that my wife is very good at recognizing. And so I'm thankful that I have her influence. Is it a distraction, do you think? Sometimes, but sometimes, and it's just hard for me to say no. Um, but I've learned over the years to value my time more and mm-hmm. to, to say no. Um, but it used to be just like, yeah, sure. I'll fly there for the weekend. Why not? Mm-hmm. You know, go to your charity event. I, I have right. no business being at. Right, right. Stuff like that. So yeah, being able to, um, to value your own time and put up these yeah. boundaries, I think. Yeah, boundaries was, was probably the biggest um, factor in all that was setting boundaries for myself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad I caught you uh, before you started putting up too many boundaries and <laughs> you said yes to this. No, no, no. I appreciate it. And, and, and it's cool. It's cool you came down too. I mean, it's, it's funny. I used to do my radio show out of this building from mm-hmm. on Sirius and it was so hard to get guests because, you know, we're in San Diego and yeah. it's usually people from LA or, or if they're from New York, then they're usually going to LA and not San Diego. And so um, we always struggled and and I finally realized that if I just drive up to Hollywood and go to the series studios in Hollywood, yeah. I can get guests. <laughs> it took me about 12 years to figure that to out. To figure that out. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I feel like we've got a good uh, introduction to who you are and uh, how do you feel about everything? Do you feel good? Uh, yeah, I feel good. I feel, uh, <laughs> I feel exposed. No, I feel, no I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm stoked to do it. And I, 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 like, I like digging deeper into 
you know, the philosophy of what you do and, and the, the, the bigger meaning of, of what you've chased your whole life and, um, you yeah. know, instead of just, what's your favorite trick? Right, right. <laughs> well, on the, on the note of philosophy, uh, let's get into the philosopher that Alex picked out for us. Okay. Uh, for you, he chose somebody named Marcel Proust. Have you ever heard of him? That doesn't sound familiar. Not to me either, but I'll, okay. I'll tell you what it says about him on the Wikipedia. It says his full name was Valentin Louis Georges Eugene Marcel Proust, a uh, Frenchman. Uh, lived, say, it sounds French. Yeah. July 10th. 1871 till November 18th, 1922. Um, he was known just as Marcel Proust, and he was a French novelist, a critic, an essayist, best known for his monumental novel, I don't know French, but I'll give it a try, A la Recherie du... It's not even worth me trying. It's embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> it means in English, in search of lost time. Earlier rendered as Remembrance of Things Past. Published in seven parts between 1913 and 1927, he is considered by critics and writers to be one of the most influential authors of the 20th century. So there's a, a little bit cool. about him. And Alex picked him for you because he says, Tony is a legendary skateboarder, so I found a philosopher who broke down myths. Okay. I'm not sure. Uh, no what... pressure on that one. <laughs> <laughs> broke down myths, I guess, because you broke down records of uh of myth uh, like oh i guess because you're a man of legend that's, huh. that's his thing okay so uh so maybe he this is a guy who breaks down legends yeah or i feel like he he's he was like an early version of snopes yeah <laughs> <laughs> um so here's a little synopsis that alex put together about uh proust he says in proust's in search of lost time the narrator explores three potential sources of meaning, success, love, and art. Well, we talked about all those things already. Yeah. Um, and by the way, I didn't ask you other than about the violin, but are, outside of skateboarding, do you have any artistic uh, abilities? Not really, no. I, I did some video editing. In fact, that's how I sort of made ends meet um, and paid my mortgage in the early 90s. Mm -hmm. was by editing videos for other, mostly skate companies, but a couple of um, random projects too. So I learned that pretty early on. I wouldn't say I'm the best at it, but that mm -hmm. would be a, a, an art form, sure. I really think video editing is akin to video directing. It's uh -huh. you, you can make the whole movie different sure, yes. with an editor. You yeah. know? It's, it's the unsung hero of the movie. Absolutely, yes. But um, anyway... He says he tries becoming a social elite, befriending a duke. He realizes the duke is boring. <laughs> this just sounds exactly like... Yeah, that's my Hollywood experience <laughs> yeah. for sure. <laughs> Meaning the upper crust are not special. Next, the narrator falls in love with a young girl. He thinks when he gets her to kiss... He thinks when he gets to kiss her, she will make him feel whole. When he finally kisses her, he realizes the man is merely an animal and love is just mating habits. Again, nothing special. The only thing that elevates our consciousness is art because it shows us the real meaning of life. Daily life itself. Life must be experienced to the full without flinching. As we age, we become jaded through the repetition. Man, this really sounds a lot <laughs> like our conversations so far. And we think, so, and think our lives are boring. 
Art shows us experiences in a new way, letting us feel excited by the mundane. The meaning of life is all around us. We are just too bored to see it. Uh, I, yeah, I think that's a good um, summation. Yeah. Although I, I would disagree with just the animal and, and um, love aspect because I do feel like I don't like the idea that you have two halves make a whole, but for sure two complete people can very much love each other and, and be in a committed relationship and, and help each other grow. And so I feel like that aspect is something that I've learned later in life, mm-hmm. but for sure is important. How did you learn it? Um, just through being more clear-headed and, and, and truly being with someone that um, I had the same sense of values and the same perspective on life and, and the same approach to parenting. Mm-hmm. So basically, we're talking about the difference of validation coming from within. Yeah, I think that that, that is a key element is that you do, you have to believe in yourself. You have to love yourself, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, you can't rely on someone else to, to make that valid. Did you always love yourself? Uh, no, not really. And for sure, I was trying to see myself through someone else's eyes and, and get that sense of validation. It's just a bad cycle. Like with the person who uh, the person discovered I was with, you. Yeah, you were, well, yeah. you were talking uh, about. Yeah, that too. I mean, well, that, that, helped, that helped me just have confidence in what I was doing. Mm-hmm. But I'm talking about like just in terms of, of intimate relationships, you know, where you are relying on that person to make you happy. And yeah. it, that happiness has to come from within. Yeah. I'm always trying to figure out how to generate that happiness within. I'm getting there. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm it's, in the process. It's hard. I mean, for sure. It takes practice. Yeah. No doubt. And, and you know, <laughs> it's baby steps and and sort of doing things. It's like, oh, yeah, that was that was cool. Right. I did that. Like, that that happened. Celebrating yeah. your little accomplishments. Yeah. There are times when, like, my kids will say something about their, you know, the, when they're really young. And, oh, you remember when you said this? Like, oh, yeah, it was pretty funny back then. Uh-huh. I did. I did all right. <laughs> Yeah, I remember I used to reject compliments. I couldn't take them yeah. because I didn't believe them. And uh, it took me a lot of work to get to the point where I could even accept when someone said, great, great job, and I could, didn't feel guilty saying thanks. Sure, you yeah, know? that's hard. That's, that's, that's hard. Yeah. I still, like, I, I, my wife and I still have those issues sometimes with, with each other, too. Just like, that was cool. <laughs> yeah. You think so? You look nice. <laughs> yeah, you know we we have we we still struggle with that because it it's ingrained in you at such an early age. Mm-hmm. Did were, were your parents? Did they speak kindly to you? They were not over complimentary. They were just supportive. Mm-hmm. I know. I, I know that seems like it should be one and the same, but it, it it's not. It's not. No. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I saw they this. were supportive in that they you know they took me to these things and they they drove me and they they like gave me the resources to do this thing I love doing, but it wasn't like they were overly complimentary. And you know, there, there's a fine line. You don't want to be, you don't want a helicopter parent. You don't want to, everyone's special. You know, that whole thing can be really devastating to a kid. Where do you feel like you wish they had done more? Like, um, maybe just shown more affection, Mm -hmm. you know, cause that I carry through with me is that like, we didn't, we didn't say I love you. We weren't like huggy and stuff like that. And, and that's something that is an element that I try to bring to my kids, but it's hard for me to break out of that cycle. That might be that military influence of, you know. Yeah, my, my dad did not have a loving background, for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. You don't see too many mushy military men. No, it's especially not. that were born in the, yeah, the 
twenties. The third way. He was born in the thirties. Yeah. So going back to our paragraph here, I think um, the parts that did resonate from our conversation to me were basically uh, about how you, you can become jaded, but art shows our experiences in a new way, letting us feel excited from the mundane. That made me think about um, when I asked you what keeps skateboarding exciting for you. And, uh, and you talked about the new things. It's just finding the new. Yeah. The new. Yeah. So I think that's true. And finding, but also finding your own style. That's crucial. You know, it's not just finding new tricks, but it's like, how is it, how do you make it your own? How is this trick iconically yours? Why is it important that it be yours? Um, I think because it's, it shows your true nature and your enjoyment of it. And also it can be your signature. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I, if I see, just say a vert skating, if I see a silhouette of someone doing a trick, you know, from the whatever, hundred people that you're familiar with maybe on a ramp, I can tell you exactly who it is based on their style, based on how they point their toes or how they use their arms. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's important. You think it's like a piece of the soul shining through? I think so. And, and it's just, that's, that's making it your own. It's like if someone has a bit of music, you know, someone plays a piano and they play concerto that is, has been passed down from generations, but they play it, you know, if you're familiar with music, you know that they've made it their own. Yeah. I've got a paragraph here from Marcel Proust. Uh, I'm wondering if you'll do the honor of okay. reading it for us. And feel free to stop throughout it if you read something and uh, okay. it hits you a certain way. The only true voyage of discovery would be not to visit strange lands, but to behold the universe through the eyes of another. We are not provided with wisdom. We must discover it after a journey which no one else can take for us. We are healed of a suffering only by experiencing it to the full. I feel like the, the vo- he says the voyage of discovery is not to visit strange lands, but to behold the universe through the eyes of another. I, I disagree in the sense that it's through your own eyes, mm-hmm. right? You're going to go visit these strange lands. I mean, I feel like that gives you so much more discovery of the world. Um, but then he kind of counteracts that and says, we're not provided with wisdom. We must discover it after a journey which no one else can take for us. But that's saying you have to take the journey yourself. Yeah, I'm not sure what he means there. So maybe you, you take the journey, but then you are looking at it from a perspective that, that isn't just your own experiences. Mm-hmm. Try to open your mind a little bit if you are taking that journey. And it's like, well, how would someone else see this? And uh, that can give you empathy. I feel like that's, that's the key. That's a great way of looking at it. Right? Yeah. Because um, I, I have definitely, like, there are things that, that I experience with other people. And I, I think, I don't know their journey i don't mm-hmm. know their process and and i my i'm quick to judge it for, based on mine mm-hmm. and so i've had to sort of step back and say all right what is what is their experience why is this important to them or why is this such an issue and have some empathy for that is there an example that you can think of um when you saw something a certain way but someone else's perspective changed the way you saw it um i think well I can only speak from more recent experiences. My daughter has been going through some anxiety with worrying about the most fantastical things in terms of she worries about monsters and ghosts and she worries about time travel. 
She worries about going back in time and being stuck there. Mm-hmm. Those kind of things, I, you want to just laugh it off. And you want to say, this is not, you know, this is all ridiculous. It's all not real. Right. But those fears are very real <clears throat> in her. Those anxieties are, are true. Yeah. And so to, to accept that from her and try to give her more perspective that, that these, you know, I've lived here 50 years, Katie. Mm-hmm. None of those things have happened. None, none of them will happen to you. They're, they're all based in fantasy. Yeah. And just give her more perspective, like, this is my journey. None of those things are going to happen, you know? And then, and then there are more things that are real and, and concerning, like school shootings. Like, she worries about school shootings. Well, okay, there is something that, that there is a reality element to that, and we have to discuss it. But yeah. it's very not likely going to happen in your lifetime to you or someone you know. Yeah. You know, you're more likely to get hit by lightning. So... To come at it from that perspective, she is more open to my advice. Have you struggled with anxiety in your own life? <sighs> not like that. No, not no. really. I think I just kept myself a bit too busy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Cool. All right. Let's continue on. Is that uh, Was that the whole paragraph? Yeah. Well, we, we have some quotes. Uh, do you want to give us the first quote? Sure. Uh, sure. Let's see. Everything great in the world comes from neurotics. They alone have founded our religions and composed our masterpieces. <clears throat> so I think he means our neuroses, like our, our anxieties and fears. For sure, I agree that they've created religions because we, we want some answerable philosophy. We want something to answer for, like, why is, why is the world like this? Why... Mm-hmm. Why is the sky blue? Why are we spinning in space? So, so it's that search for answers that, that neuro, neuroses will, will um, inspire, is what you're saying? Yeah, or, or just the, the neuroses of, or the uncertainty, the, the anxieties where it's like, I need an answer for this. Mm-hmm. All right, here's some answer that really has no, has no basis in reality, okay. but it'll do. Yeah. I feel like that's, the, I mean, I don't want to diss all religions, but I feel like that is a definite... Uh, which re- which point, religions religion. are we dissing? Yeah, yeah, just to be we're not. <laughs> I don't want to dis- all of them. All religions. All of them. None of them. <laughs> but but do you think it's true for for other things? What else did he say? Religion and what else? Uh, they have founded our religions and composed our masterpieces. So same like it's it's your desire to to find an answer where you're going to create your best work. Is that true in your own career? Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, the desire to keep pushing what I'm doing, even if it's not just on a skateboard, but, but through my experiences and through my skateboarding, like I, I feel like some of my best work has been done in, just in philanthropy, mm-hmm. you know, figuring out how to make new skate parks in low income areas and just plugging away at it, yeah. trial and error, and then figuring out how to make the most of our money. And, you know, now we're at 588 skate parks across the U.S., I wonder if any areas have lowered their income to get you to come and make a skate park. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but it was a struggle. We, we wanted to be in all 50 states. Uh-huh. It's hard to find low-income area in Connecticut. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Yeah. What but we managed to help. Danbury, they didn't have... Uh... Uh, yeah, you know. <laughs> all right, you want another quote I here? I can see people being like, you know, we got to make less money. We got to get Tony. Yeah, <laughs> or, or just write a check yourself. Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing. Is like, well, if you're in a high-income area, we'll give you the the guidebook right. to make a skate park 
Just fund it yourself. Go and do it. Yeah. yeah, you've clearly got the money. Yeah. And we have. That has worked. Yeah. By the way, just a, a one-off question. Being a great skateboarder, does that translate to being a great surfer? Uh, not always, no. I mean, if you have the, 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 the basics of surfing is a much harder learning, learning curve. Learning to stand up and ride down the, down the face of a wave is way harder than just getting on a skateboard and going down the street. Mm -hmm. um, but once you start to explore sort of the lip and aerials, that's when it starts to, the crossover with skill set mm -hmm. for sure. But, but it's not, it doesn't guarantee you're going to learn how to surf at what, all. What about snowboarding? That's got to be. It's a little bit more, clo it's closer, mm -hmm. but not, not quite the same. Are you a good surfer or snowboarder? I'm okay surfer. I'm a better snowboarder, mm -hmm. um, but I never felt like, I had that sense of confidence or that desire to really push things the way I did on a skateboard. Um, also, because I just didn't want to start over. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Let's go to the next quote. Okay. The bonds that unite another person to ourself exist only in our mind. Our personality is created by the thoughts of other people. Um, I agree with the first part because I, think I feel like you unite, you know, you're really connected to someone through mental connection not mm -hmm. just physical maybe initially physical but right you've got to have emotional and mental connections with people but i think that um personality is created by the thoughts of other people that's that's a bold statement i i can see where he, he's coming from though i mean i think in terms of just going back to when i was asking you about how your parents talked to you and such uh, or how they treated you sure um I remember I saw a meme on Facebook that I thought was very like eye-opening that said like the way you speak to your children becomes their internal voice. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I think it's more our personality is, I would say, influenced by the thoughts of other people, but not just wholly created. But it might be an amalgamation of sure. like how, what everybody thinks of you. Like, yeah, you, even, but you, you definitely have your own thoughts. You know what I mean? And, mm -hmm. and you definitely have your own sort of direction from an early age what if we think they're our own thoughts but really they're just projected i don't know now then you're getting into matrix type of stuff and i just don't, I don't think i can indulge you in that but i mean like even when you were picked on as a kid yeah that must have shaped your personality in some ways yeah it, it hardened me for sure but but at the same time i was drawn to people that i that i felt like weren't you know weren't prone to talking badly about people or or were more creative and that came from me mm -hmm. you know what i mean that wasn't just because of other people that well, i was drawn to that what if you'd been accepted by the the bullies what if they had taken you in? i, I knew early on i mean because i did i you know i walked that line a little bit i had some friends that were kind of troublemakers and mm -hmm. at some point i was like i don't want to go throw rocks at cars you know what i mean like <laughs> that's not that interesting yeah um all right. I so think there we go. We, okay. have, we have one more, right? All right. Last quote. Yeah. Happiness is beneficial for the body, but it is grief that develops the powers of the mind. Um, I agree with that to an extent. Happiness for sure will benefit your body in terms of keeping you healthy and keeping you um, engaged and alive. Mm -hmm. I believe that. Uh, and, and, you know, making good choices with your diet and stuff like that. But I think that grief develops... Grief that develops the powers of the mind. Grief, probably what he's saying is that to process grief and to come through it 
that's much more mental. Mm-hmm. But I think that it can be connected to your physical state because if you are active, if you are, you know, if you are keeping your mind or if you are keeping your body healthy, that does relate to your happiness and your way of getting through those things. So yeah, I don't like the, I don't like the disconnect that he's putting there. Right. I think they're much more connected. Well, what about when you injured yourself and you said that that had such a profound effect and change it did on you. mentally for sure i had to but i had to push through it physically as well but did that develop the powers of your mind it helped for sure because that was a form of grief right it was yeah 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 it was hugely traumatic yeah yeah so i no, i agree but i'm saying but there was a physical element to that that if i had just given up physically i would not have had the mental state i have now mm-hmm. if i had just given up on my skate career i wouldn't be this uh, this um content yeah so i had to push through physically as well um i just had another question while you were saying that when because it goes back to the way you were saying you were how motivated you are and how how you're constantly moving and and how hard it was for you to stop for somebody who wants to go the opposite way do you think the tactic would work as well that whatever it is that got you to be able to stay still can you apply that the opposite way? I think so. I think it just takes practice and I think it takes discipline. And that, that is, that's, that's the key to any of this stuff is discipline. And, and, and it gets easier. I mean, that's really, that's the key. You know, that's, that's the thing I tell people um, that want to do anything. It's just like, if, if you start doing it, you make it more routine, it gets easier. Mm-hmm. But it seems impossibly hard at the beginning, whatever it is. Um, getting up, getting moving, you know, being yeah. idle and being comfortable. Like that was not something I wanted to deal with. But once I got into it or once I, once I did it and, and was disciplined about getting there, it was, it was easier to deal with for sure. It's crazy. And now I value my downtime. Yeah. And I never did before. Really? Yeah. So it's just about creating new like pathways in the brain. That's it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And you do, you create them. And new habits. Yeah. Man, it's it's been really fun chatting with you here, and uh, you too, and, and you. inspiring. You know, I, I, uh, I, I think I got a lot out of this conversation. I don't know yet. I'll know in like an hour when it sits with me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we'll hear it back, and then maybe maybe some, we'll bring out some good ones. But my impulse is that I got a lot out of this conversation. All right, cool. <laughs> I me hope. too. No, I appreciate it. I appreciate you digging deep and and exposing me to new philosophies. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, and uh, thanks for. Thanks for inspiring me throughout the years as well. Right on, my pleasure. And I enjoyed uh, I enjoyed getting to be you for a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, I enjoyed being on your show, so thank you. Thanks so much. Well, that's our episode. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Thanks again to Alex Fasella for putting together those notes and to Logan Heftel for mastering the audio. And by the way, Logan has a new podcast available at Apple Podcasts called I Know What I Know which, believe me, he knows. And you can check that out. Uh, like I said, go to Apple Podcasts, or you can check out his website, which is iknow.lol. His first guest is Kelly Carlin, who's been a guest on our show, and she's wonderful. I highly recommend it. And, of course, thank you again to Tony Hawk. Please go and leave five stars and a nice comment on iTunes. It really helps our visibility on the charts, and I would very much appreciate it. And you can always check out our website at moderndayphilosophers.net if I don't speak to you before, and I assume I won't. 
and you're Jewish or you're not, but you want the holiday blessings or greetings or whatever it is anyway, have a happy Rosh Hashanah. And uh, I'll talk to you guys next time with another exciting, and you guessed it, or you will guess it, jam-packed episode of Modern Day Philosophers. I've been Daniel Lobel, and I'll talk to you later. Thanks so much. Bye-bye now.